What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewer. You're listening to, or watching as the case may be, Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things, we contemplate them, we turn them over in our minds, and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. We are not going to keep the matter in our heart. We're going to talk about it. And today we're going to talk about why I practice Christianity. Before we get into the meat of our podcast, though, let's hear a word from our sponsor. And I should have had this queued up. What's going on, everybody? Uh, John Exum, Diana Merritt Harden. Hello, Tony. And uh, John's watching us on Facebook. So is Diana Merritt Harden. But I will tell you this. We've got a much bigger crowd in than I thought. I figured the closer we get to Christmas, the more the crowd would slack off, not because of any particular thing other than uh, you just got better things to do. And, and I don't I don't mean to be, uh, I think the word's flagellating. Um, I, I don't, I don't mean to be, um, taking away from, uh, the people that find value in my content. I'm just saying during this time of year, you traveling, you got friends and family coming in, you got to clean your house, got to cook food. Incidentally, I'm cooking food this year. Somebody got us a brisket and, uh, we're going to be cooking a brisket for the holiday season. And, uh, yeah, what, what, what am I doing? Oh yeah. Lindsay Faye Dotson, gmail.com. We're going to hear a word from our sponsor. Folks, we're so thankful to have a good sponsor like Lindsay Faye Dotson at gmail.com. If you do business with her, you are helping support the work that we're doing. You're helping us get the word out about the message of the gospel, uh, teaching people the Bible, and we're going to th- grilled or fried. Oh, brisket, grilled, uh, smoked, slow smoked. Uh, probably smoke that thing for about 20 hours. Actually, you don't really smoke it for 20 hours. You bring it up to uh, to temp, and I, I can't remember. I've I've got a method, but I have to. I cook so few briskets. I have to. Um, I, I cook so few briskets. I have to consult my notes, but it's get it around a hundred and some odd degrees, and you you get that good bark on the outside, and let it get kissed by that smoke, and get that good smoky flavor. Then you wrap it. And I wish I had some butcher paper because I would melt some beef tallow and I would coat that butcher paper and I would wrap that brisket in that butcher paper that soaked in beef tallow. Then I would wrap it again and then I would finish it out. And for the purist, you finish it out in the smoker. Listen, I'm the older I get, the more I'm like, Hey, listen, the journey is great but the destination is where it's at. Because when I was younger, I loved the journey. I loved the building of the fire, the preparing the meat and all that good stuff. And as good as the meat was, the journey was what I wanted. The destination was just icing on the cake. But now that I'm older, it's all about the destination. So what I want to do is when I get this brisket and I get its bark set and I get it wrapped and I'm going to have to wrap it in aluminum foil, um, I'm going to finish it off in the oven because it's just so much easier to control. Uh, don't have to tend to fire. You don't all kinds of stuff, you know, but you, and, and it makes the house smell like smoke. Um, hello, uh, hello, Tony. 
sorry, I was reading your comment and trying to say hello to you at the same time. Um, hello, Missy Malone. She says, good morning, Tony. How are you? Well, my mouth is watering and I'm a little hungry because I was talking about cooking a brisket. Uh, Hey, Hey, Alabama says she ain't no slacker. And John Exum says a brisket sounds delicious. Although I've had brisket before. Oh man, it's wonderful. Uh, my wife is not the biggest fan of briskets. Um, quite frankly, she would rather have pulled pork or, um, pork tenderloin, or, uh, she would rather have a chub of smoked bologna and oddly enough, smoked bologna is wonderful. And people think it's so difficult to do the people that love it. They're like, Oh, I wish I could do this. I'm like, you literally can. You don't even have to have a smoker. You just build you a little fire off to one side in your regular grill and throw you a bunch of wood chips on there and get that smoke rolling. Uh, coach your, um, coach your chub of bologna and some olive oil or mustard, score it first, and then put whatever dry rub you like on it. And if you want to get real stinking creative, and I promise the, the cooking segment of the show is going to end and we're going to get into why I step, why I practice Christianity, but you can glaze that smoked bologna as you smoke it. And all you got to do is, I mean, it's already cooked. So all you got to do is bring it up to a te- internal temperature of about 120, 130 degrees. I, I try to do it 150, but you, it's just amazing. And I've cooked for people a lot. And the, the thing that makes them go crazy the most is the smoked bologna. So anyway, um, that's all I've got. Uh, awesome. I haven't had smoked bologna. I've had it fried, but not smoked. Well, you, you need to get you, like I said, you don't need an expensive grill. You don't need a big smoker, just the, a, a grill that's big enough that you can set your bologna on one side and your, and your coals on the other. And just don't, don't get your fire too hot and just smoke it to temp and it's good. Anyway, let's hear a word from our sponsor. That's right. Now we need a food cogitations podcast. Um, are you part of a church congregation that is seeking effective ways to spread the word about your event or quite frankly, any organization that needs to advertise on social media? Well, look no further. Lindsay Dotson specializes in designing modern advertisements for churches. Whether it's flyers, postcards, or social media graphics, Lindsay has got you covered. Reach out through a private message on Facebook or send an email to lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com, which is the preferred method for more details. Don't miss this opportunity to allow your message to resonate both far and wide. Contact Lindsay Dotson, lindsayfaydotson at gmail.com today. All right, folks. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We are, uh, we're growing on Twitter. And when I say we're growing on Twitter, we have nine followers and it just, Hey, listen, if we can get for the amount of time I've been on Twitter, I can't remember how long it's been less than a month, but if I could get nine followers within two or three weeks, every week, uh, that would just tickle me pink. So, uh, yeah, if you're on Twitter, uh, if you, if, even if you don't use it a lot, consider just whenever you have some downtime logging in and interacting with the Christianity now Twitter account or X and that's first Chronicles 1232 one Chronicles one, two, three, two. Now it wasn't very long ago that one of the members where I preach brought a guest 
and we were talking after the Bible study, and the guest asked me why I was a Christian. And I can't remember exactly how he worded it. It was something to the effect of why do you live this way or why do you choose to live this way or uh, something like that. But um, it prompted me to answer in this way. The reason I practice the what the Bible teaches, the reason I live a life dedicated to Christ and having a relationship with God through the teachings of Christ is it is the best way to live regardless of whether or not it's true. Even if the Bible were false, even if the Bible were just something that's contrived in the mind of man and it's not inspired of God and we're all just a bunch of meat sacks running around on a blue marble flying around the universe, you know what? Christianity is still the best way to live. Now, I do not believe that to be the case about it being not true. I believe that the Bible is from the mind of God and that through the Holy Spirit, God communicated his word to mankind. All right? If we follow what the grace of God teaches us, we will deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we will live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Soberly is sober-minded. That's your inner man. Talking about Robert R. Taylor Jr., John Exum. Um, I was at the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee for the truth. I believe it's called the Truth and Love Lectureships. I can't remember. Anyway, for a lectureship that they hold yearly. And Brother Robert R. Taylor was preaching, and in his sermon, his topic was not about was not about Titus 2, 11 and following, but in the sermon he talked about, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So soberly, he said, that's your inner outward and upward man. And man, I love stuff like that. And so, buddy, that that really caused me to pay more attention even than I was paying. And he said, sober is your inner man. It's being sober-minded. Righteous is upright before your fellow man, and godly is upward. It's, It's in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, if the if let's say that you're not in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's say that you're an atheist and you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. You don't believe that the Bible is true. But you consider the Bible. Hello Terry Crooks, good to see you and thank you John Exum. Uh yes, it's the Truth and Love lectureship. So let's say then that you you read the Bible and you think, "Okay, well I'm going to live like this." You will be able to live a life soberly, sober-mindedly, and upright before your fellow man. You will have a better life, and you will live a life of purpose than you otherwise would, a better life than you otherwise would. Why is that? Because of what the grace of God teaches us. Think about all the people who lead a hedonistic lifestyle. 
Think about the rate at which people take their own lives who live with no purpose. We must serve something greater than ourselves. Now, to the Christian, that, that, that goes all the way back to the religious argument for the existence of God. Blase Pascal, there's a God-sized hole in the chest of every man. How vain it is to think that you can fill that God-sized hole up with something so small and insubstantive as drugs, alcohol, promiscuity of a sexual nature, running around uh, from man to man or woman to woman, or chasing money. You can't, you can't fill it up with that. If you only live for self, then you're going to be miserable. It's not going to be a good life. Before we get to the 125th Psalm, um, as I'm sitting here going through this, and this is why we do this live instead of pre-recorded, uh, for one, I love the comments and I love the interaction with the crowd, but it, whoops, that's what I get for talking and turning. All right, uh, Philippians. Listen to this. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Let's listen to how Paul, what he thought was the best way to live. He counted all of these other accolades as dung. All right? Boy, yea, and yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ Jesus of Christ and the righteousness, which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, Either were already perfected, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now, here's the point. Um, awesome. Oh, I did. That's right. Um, yeah, cool. I, I, I used soberly, righteously, godly in the idea of the pride of life and that first John chapter two, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is the antithesis of Titus one or two, 11 and following. I remember that. Yeah. Cool beans. Cool beans. I forgot you were there during that Jonathan or John. All right. Now here, here's where it gets punchy. This is the thrust of the matter. The, the crux of the matter. This is the thrust. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this without the italicized words provided by the translator because I think it's better. I think it's more true to what Paul was trying to communicate. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but one thing. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know what a prominent 
psychologist, modern-day philosopher has made a living telling people to do? Orient yourself towards the highest possible good of which you can conceive and press toward that mark. Folks, that's what Paul's telling you. Paul's saying, listen, all of this other stuff I counted as dung, it is not transcendent. But having a relationship with a higher power outside of this cosmos, that is transcendent. And I forget those things which are behind, and I press toward those things which are are ahead. And the image he paints here is of like a little bitty toddler. Listen, we've got this kid, Jomi, at Riverview, and he's a toddler. Now, we got Jaden as well, and Jaden and Jomi, they're wonderful. Two vastly different personalities. Um, Jomi and I have kind of made buddies. And I think it's because his daddy listens to my content and his daddy will have my, my, my content on in the house on the television while he's doing some work or something like that. And Jomi hears my voice all the time. I could be wrong, but, um, Jomi, he'll always, he'll always run to me and he'll run and he'll put his hands up and he'll just kind of fall into me. I don't even think about it. I just bend down and pick him up when he does that. All right. Now, Everybody who has been around a toddler or everybody who has been parents of children, they know what that signal is. They know what it is when a little baby, especially when a little baby, a little toddler sees his mama, when he lost track of his mama, and then he runs and he he holds his hands up and he runs towards his mama. That's the picture that Paul is painting. You orient yourself towards the highest possible good of which you can conceive and you run with outstretched arms towards it. And you're not going to catch it while you're on this side of eternity. But you need to you need to count yourself as having apprehended one thing. Laying aside all of the junk that's going to hold you back, the ungodliness and the worldly lust, and with a sober mind being upright before your fellow man, you run toward that godly life. So, so as Paul did, you count not yourself to have apprehended, but one thing. Run toward God and don't look back. Paul learned how to do that. That's what we need to learn from the Bible. And if we're orienting ourselves toward the highest possible good of which we can conceive, whether what we can conceive is true or not, we're still orienting ourselves towards that ideal. You're going to have a better life. Bar none, period. You're going to have a more fulfilled life. You're going to be more successful in business. Yes, you're going to be persecuted. But look at the people who are persecuting you. You don't want to live like they live anyway. Again, it goes back to that meme. Your booze mean nothing. I see what makes you cheer. Of course you're going to persecute me. I've differentiated myself from you, and I want I don't want to be down there with you and validate you in your squalor by me living and participating in it with you. Well, you just come off as holier than thou. That makes me holier than thou. I don't I don't I'm going to try my best to help you. But I'm not going to get I'm the prodigal son. The father 
would have done anything in the world to help the prodigal son besides go get him in the pig pen. He's not going to go down there in the pig pen and waller in the muck with him. All right. Um, let me see the chat here. Here we have two powerful negatives followed by three precious positives. The negative includes all sins, mental, vocal, and in habits and deed. The positives, likewise, are the comprehensive in nature. To live soberly is to live right with self. To live righteously is to live right with others. To live godly is to live right with God. Here we have an excellent threefold delineation of the Christian life. Inward living, outward living, and upward living. How noble and noteworthy. That sounds like, oh, yeah, right here. Um, that sounds like Robert R. Taylor. And evidently it is. That quote by Brother Taylor's in the 2017 Truth and Love Lectureships. Well, I get, I don't, I don't recall it being, I thought it was while I was in school. But anyway, I could, um, of course, I, if that's the quote and you got it out of the 2017 book, then evidently I'm misremembering the year. Ain't that weird? Your memory is, listen, I don't hardly trust memory for anything. I, I really don't. And it's because of stuff like that right there. Um, I would have bet you a dollar to a, a donut that's caked in mold that that quote was from 2014 or 2015. Anyway, so that that's the point I want to get across to us today is it's a better way to live. It's a better way to live. And once you differentiate yourself from the masses, um, the world's going to hate you. Again, it doesn't matter. Let, let's say let's say God doesn't exist, and this book, this book right here, developed in, on the world scene, and it was it was written and edited and and uh, morphed into what it is by very very wise men, and. Um, if there wasn't anything to it, the world wouldn't hate it. And I still, I still don't understand why people deny the truth of this book because, and I don't know who said this. I think it's some, there's no telling. It could be C.S. Lewis or some of them, but you know, the truth is truth. Even if it comes from false teachers, a blind squirrel finds a nut and a broken clock's right twice a day. Anyway, there's only three types of people that could have authored the Bible. Righteous people, lunatics, and liars. Lunatics did not write the Bible because it's too logically arranged and it has stood the test of time. Liars didn't write the Bible because unrighteous and wicked people such as liars would not create a book like this that condemned their way of life. That only leaves righteous people. If the Bible is not true, righteous people could not have written it because you cannot be a liar and be righteous. Folks, that logical exercise right there is enough for me to proclaim and conclude that it is more reasonable 
to consider this Bible to be from the mind of God than the mind of man. I think the third category, instead of righteous, it would be inspired. Inspired people. Inspired people, unrighteous people, or lunatics. Well, it's got to be inspired people. I was not at MSOP in 2017. uh, 2015 was my graduating year. That's why I was like, it's got to, but that's the thing. I mean, I may have went back to visit. I don't know. Or it's possible that, I mean, I, I say a lot of the same things over and over and over again. So maybe brother, maybe brother Taylor loves that passage of script. I mean, I love it because he introduced it to me in that way. So therefore he may, he, if he loves it, like I do, I mean, I don't hardly go a week without quoting it either on a live stream or in a, or in a, um, in a, in a sermon or a Bible study. I mean, it's such a wonderful, powerful and profound and poignant passage talking about Robert Taylor and his alliteration. Anyway, so let's go to the 20, 125th Psalm and let's develop a thought here in the time that we have left. Uh, it's just five verses. I'm going to read it all. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth, even forever. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Lord, unto those that do good, or that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside unto the crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity but peace shall be upon Israel. This reminds me of going all the way back to the issue with Cain and Abel in the very beginning. Cain was wroth. He didn't like the fact that Abel's sacrifice was accepted. So Cain killed Abel in in, in wrath. God visits him. Cain, where's your brother? Well, never mind. I'm getting ahead of the story. Okay, cool. My lecture from 2018 is on YouTube on East Hills page. Cool beans. So, um, God visits Cain. He says, Cain, why art thou, why, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, will it not be accepted of thee? And if thou doest not well, then sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire. Now, if we go back to Genesis chapter 4 and we look, I'm just going to do the overview. We'll be here two hours if I go to Genesis 4. Okay, go back and look, and after Cain kills Abel, God comes and says, hey, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? No, look, you killed him. You're, uh, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to put a mark upon you, or I'm going I'm to exile you. And I'm going to put a mark on you so people don't kill you. And you're not going to have a home. The earth is not going to yield her strength. 
And the only reason you're going to be allowed to live is because of the charity of others. If we violate the rules of the cosmos, we will not be dependable. We'll not show up to work on time. We won't be good workers. We won't be good providers. We won't be good husbands. We won't be good wives. We will be ostracized by friend groups. We won't be, we won't be accepted in polite society. So it will be very hard for us to even live in this world. You know, indigent, transient, migrant people that refuse to conform to the rules of polite society, that refuse to conform to the rules of Judeo-Christian values, and it is very hard for them to be successful. In any culture, in any system, even a system that is rigged against you. If you do well, it will be accepted of you. And if you, if you do not well, sin lieth at the door and unto thee shall be his desire and thou shall rule over it. You're going to enter into a copulative relationship with sin and the progeny of which is chaos and death. And this is played out all through history, even in recent history. People who adhere to Judeo-Christian values that you can learn about in God's word, even when they are grossly and terribly oppressed, they have a better life. They are happy. They have a deep and abiding happiness, a joy that other people don't have. They have a sense of purpose that transcends their current station. That's why they can be very, very oppressed and be happy and lead a better life than someone who is not. I think about the interview from the news person with um, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley told that interviewer when he asked him a question about if he's happy or not, he said, I got to be the, the, the saddest man on the face of the planet. And the news reporter couldn't understand why. Well, go read Psalm 30 and go read Psalm 73 and you'll know why. You look around, and if you're only focused on this world, and if you're not living for anything higher than yourself, then you're going to wonder how come the wicked prosper? How come they're so audacious? How come they're so oppressive, and if things just seem like they work out to the good? Ah, but then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then understood I their end. God has set them on a slippery slope. Do you know how much money Jeffrey Bezos is going to leave behind out of his fortune? Of all the money he has, do you know how much of it he's going to leave behind? Every bit of it. 100%. And here's the thing. He's enjoyed a really good life on this earth. It's going to be hard for him in eternity. Now, take somebody who's suffered a lot. Take somebody who has had a hard knock life, but who is a Christian, who's lived for something more. It's potential, it's potential, there's, well, excuse me, potentially that person has had a better life, a more fulfilled life with smaller things than Jeffrey Bezos has had with bigger things. Somebody asked a million there, uh, well, this is, <laughs> this dates me. I heard this back in the 80s. Somebody asked a millionaire, well, if you had a million dollars in the 80s, you're pretty rich. 
Uh, somebody asked a millionaire in the eighties, how much money is enough money? How much more money do you need? And the answer is just a little more. Ben Grady, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will never leave his house. Proverbs 17, 13. Sorry, I had to cock up my glasses so I could see through the bottom of my bifocals. Now, let's run through this psalm real quick. I love this. I, I've, been, I've been loving my readings in the psalms and stuff. All right. They that trust the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which can be, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. All right. So if you, if there, you are going to have some substance about you, if you trust in the Lord, and we're going to use that as a metaphor for following the Bible. All right. So if you trust in the Lord, if you follow the Bible, you're going to be like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. You're going to have some substance about you. As the mountains are around Jerusalem, so the Lord is around his people from henceforth forevermore. You're going to have some protection from the Lord. You're going to have a hedge about you. There are going to be things that you're going to be protected from if you follow the Bible. If you're an atheist and you follow the Bible, you're going to be protected against certain things. You're not going to make it into heaven because Hebrews 11.6 exists. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because in order to please God, you've got to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Well, if you're an atheist, you don't believe that God is, so you cannot be pleasing to God. But you can be sober-minded and upright before your fellow man, and you can live for the highest possible good of which you can conceive, and you'll have a better life on this earth than if you didn't live in a way that's commensurate with God's commandments and precepts and divine examples. All right. If you live that way, then, you know, Jerusalem, um, it had all these mountains about. And I think that kind of gave it some natural protection. All right. Now, we'll keep on going. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the light of the righteous lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. So the the authority and power of the wicked is not going to rest upon people who are following the Bible. All oh, they may be oppressed. They may they may they they may put you in prison. They may tax you. They may ostracize you, but they cannot rob you of your joy. They cannot rob you of your purpose in life. Whenever you suffer for, for godly reasons, not as an evildoer, but for godly reasons, you can look at the people oppressing you and say, there's nothing you can do. Man, I, I, can't rem- I, I can't remember what season of Vikings it was, but I saw a clip where the, the pagans uh, captured this Christian And he's on his knees and he's tied to a stake and they're about to set it on fire. And he says, there is someone with me, although I cannot see him. And the, the pagan leaders are kind of provoking him and making fun of him. Like, who is it? And he said, it's a man that's telling me that if I believe and if I'm like, I can't remember what he said, but uh, those that believe in the Lord and trust in the Lord, um, shall not die. They will, they will, they will be resurrected. Um, he said, so do whatever you want to me. In fact, uh, 
the, the person that was going to set the fire was this young man or this kid really. And it was kind of like a rite of passage and he didn't want to do it. And the person that was going to be burned actually comforted the kid. He said, look, just, just go ahead and do it. And you just go ahead and consider me as a dead man because there's nothing that you can do to me. Folks, that's the conviction that Christians need. If you're living according to the truth of God's word, even if you're only living according to the truth of God's word because you see the virtue of it, then when troubles and trials and tribulations and oppressions come, which they will, you can say, listen, I've sacrificed my own life to the greater good, and I'm living for the greater good. Consider me as a dead man. There's nothing you can do to me. Now, granted, when you die, you're going to go to torments to the paradise, and it's going to be bad for you. So my suggestion is if you're going to live according to the commandments, precepts, and divine examples found in God's word, then you need to believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him so you can be pleasing to him so that when you do die, angels take you to paradise instead of whatever it is that takes you to torment. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. So they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40, 31, and then the song, Teach Me, Lord, to Wait. It's a good, I mean, it's just wonderful. And, and that's the trusting in the power of God. How do you do that? What does it look like? It looks like you're going through this world and you're being formidable and you're leaving, leading a life for the highest possible good you have, you can conceive. And if, and if you do that, you're going to live as if you have this hedge round about you and the wicked will have no control over you whatsoever. How do you defeat a man or woman who's willing to die before they compromise? I think the United States, I think we had a problem with that in the Vietnam conflict because we were dealing with, maybe for the first time in history, people who would be more willing to die than to give up. And there wasn't a, an actual right and wrong side to that conflict. I think there was an actual, in World War II, I think was the last time that we were in a war, for one, technically, and two, it was the last time probably on the world stage, with the exception of some stuff recently, that there's an actual right and wrong, good and evil side to be on. But the Viet Cong, the VC, boy, they, like, how, how do you defeat them? Because their soldiers, if they died in battle, that was good for them. And they just wanted to take as many of your guys out. And as General Patton says, and I'm cleaning this up, wars are not won by young men dying for their country. Wars are won because more young because those young men cause the opposition's young men to die for their country. Well, if death is a is a victory, how do you beat somebody? How do you how do you how do you win? 
I think about the Apostle Paul. Hey, you've converted to Christianity. We're going to kill you. All right, so we're going to let me down with with a rope and a basket. All right, so uh, you're going to preach here? Well, if you keep preaching here, we're going to throw you in jail. Well, he converts the jailer and his family. Hey, if you keep preaching here, we're going to kill you. He keeps preaching, so they stone him and they drag his what they think is his dead body outside the city. He goes right back in and preaches, by the way. Hey, if you don't quit preaching, we're going to put you in prison for the rest of your life and eventually kill you. And then Paul writes the Bible and he dies. Well, he doesn't die. They kill him. There's a difference. So the point, the point is this. Live a life commensurate with the values of Judeo-Christian values and, or, or the Judeo, the Judeo-Christian, uh, beliefs. And the wicked will have no, no power over you. All they can kill you still didn't make you do what they still didn't make you compromise who you are. Now, this is a plea to God. Do good. O Lord, and to those that be good and to them that are upright in their hearts. Well, that goes back to Genesis four. If thou doest well, will it not be accepted of thee? As for such that turn aside into their crooked ways. The Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. So if you don't do well, then you're going to enter into a copulative relationship with chaos and and sin. Well, no, no, with sin, the progeny of which is chaos and death. I got twisted up there. Israel, there's going to be peace upon Israel. Well, why is there going to be peace upon Israel? Because from the perspective of the psalmist, we're going to follow the Lord from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. Folks, this is just a much better way to live. It's got better promises. There's better conditions. And on top of the fact, on top of the proposition of God's existence and Jesus being who he claimed to be while he was on earth, we have the promise of an eternity in heaven. Why would you choose to live any other way? So that's why I practice Christianity. We all have a tendency to be independent, which can lead us to make foolish decisions. This is similar to the story of the prodigal son who left his father's house to live on his own and ended up in a difficult situation. Why, instead of rebuking his son, the father patiently grants him his request? Is a picture of God, is, is this a picture of God letting the sinner go his own way? Terry, that's a good question. Here's how I dealt with it. So I preach the, is it Luke chapter 8 or Luke chapter 18? This got the parable of the prodigal son. That's terrible. I should know that off the top of my head, shouldn't I? No, it's not Luke chapter 8. But it's also not Luke chapter 18. So it's Luke 15? Yep. Luke 15 has three parables. The parables of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. (coughs) Pardon me. When I preach a sermon, I preach all three of these parables at once because 
really, it's not three parables. It's, it's all one parable. Yes, I know that they're listed as three different parables. <clears throat> but in my, the way I present this, this really is an archetype of every person who falls into apostasy. The lost sheep just kind of wanders off. They're not nefarious. They're not overly wicked. They're not overly evil. They just wander off because they're not paying attention. And how do you deal with them? Well, you deal with them by go chasing them down and bringing them back. Well, what about the parable of the lost coin? Well, the parable of the lost coin, the coin has no agency in his being and it's being lost. So this is an example of in a congregation, especially a large congregation, you might have people fall through the cracks. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you have a Christian that's coming in and you don't realize they're getting discouraged. That's a 500 member congregation and they get lost in the background. And then all of a sudden it's been four Sundays and they haven't shown up and you're like, well, what's going on? So they, they were, they were quote unquote lost because the leadership and the other members didn't offer fellowship like they should have. So what do you do? You diligently search them out. All right. And then the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son is a a Christian. I'm going to bring it to the 21st century. The parable of the prodigal son is a Christian who says, I ain't living under God's authority. I'm going to take the blessings with which I have been blessed and I'm going to go away from God and I'm going to live how I want to live. And I'm going to, I'm going to live according to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Those people, you just, you give them space. You let them do what they're going to do. And you be as the father in the parable, looking for them to come back with open arms. Now I'm not saying that you don't somebody like that, that you don't try with them. But there has to be a sense in which you just give them their space and they'll come back when they're ready. They've got to hit rock bottom. Now, to answer your question, why did the father not rebuke his son, but instead gave him the son, the money at the son's request? And here's how I answer that every time I preach. Because in order to prove the point that, or in order to illustrate the point that Jesus wanted to illustrate, the story had to progress that way because it's a, it, 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 it was, it, it had to, it had to happen or else you don't have the parable. I think we got to be careful assigning meaning to ancillary, um, or arbitrary details in parables. Well, like for instance, the parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the mustard seed is you got something little bitty that grows really, really big, and your little bitty amount of faith can accomplish something really, really big. And something as little bitty as a, a little bitty as a mustard seed can grow into something very, very large, the same way the little bitty seed of the gospel can grow into what we know as the Lord's church. Daniel chapter two, a little bitty stone smashed the heel of the Colossus, and in its place arose a giant um, 
megalith, a giant uh, kingdom that encompassed the entire earth and would never fade away, would never be passed to other people or anything like that. Um, so I don't know that that I don't know that it means anything. The, the, I think the answer to the question of why did the father give the son the money is because he had to in order for the son to be able to become prodigal. So Jesus could 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 drive the point home, and the point of all three of those parables is don't be the Pharisees. Don't be the older brother. That's the point of all three of those parables. You want to be like the angels in heaven who rejoice at the one sheep. You want to be the you you want to be the ninety nine who rejoice. You don't want to be you don't want to be that older brother who's like, well that that sheep was just so stupid it wandered off. The coin, you know, you could the the other coins and and like, well why is she's got nine coins? Why is she working so hard to get that one? You don't want to be that. And you certainly don't want to be the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son to where it's like, look, I've been here always and, and you've never asked me, you've never cooked me, you've never done anything for me. And that's, that's the point. Don't, don't go, go to the, go to the very first part of the chapter. And well, I mean, I got it right here. I'll read it. Then drew near unto him, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So there's your occasion for the parable. The older brother, the nine coins and the ninety-nine sheep, they're the they're the they're the scribes and the Pharisees. And the coin and the sheep and the prodigal son, they're the publicans and the sinners. The older brother is the Pharisees and the scribes. And that's all I've got. So I guess you could probably make the case that, well, if, if the father, the father is going to allow you to do whatever it is you want to do. So you could, you could probably say that that's a layer, but again, I don't, I don't think it's needed to, to get the, the thrust of the parable, to get the crux of the matter. Awesome. Good stuff. Listen, folks, I think I'm a had lad. Sometimes, however, we who have failed can better empathize than one who has never made the big failing sins or mistakes. Yeah, uh, that's yes. I, and, and, and I don't, I don't think I, I, and Ben, I know you're not saying this. I'm not, I don't want to be putting words and or thoughts into your head or mouth at all. Um, but I have heard people say that it's better to have gone out and sown your wide, wild oats, as it were, because you you make a better evangelist, you make a better Christian because you're more able to relate to other people. And I'm like, I don't know. I Like, I get it, but I, I think I can be, a, I think I know some very, very effective evangelists that have never, quote unquote, sown their wild oats. And again, Ben, I know that you're not saying that. I'm just, I'm just kind of adding to that for the sake of the live stream. Well, folks, um, we, we have come to the end. Uh, I hope I have communicated well why I practice Christianity, uh, because it's the best way to live. Well, that would have taken about 10 seconds. Maybe that's what I should have done. Anyway, um, Christianity now, um, 
we got folks watching on Facebook and, and Christianity Now streams. Um, so far, I haven't gotten any live viewers on X, formerly known as Twitter, but people are watching it very a little bit after the after the after the fact. <laughs> ben, it's better to learn from God in the first place than never make the mistakes. Yeah, I think about um, burning your hand on a wood stove. It's much better just to listen to your mama and not touch the stove. It's better to listen to God and not make the mistakes. But aren't you glad that if we do be hard-headed and we go out there and we muck, we get in the, we get in the muck and the mire with the pigs, that God will take us back. And we don't have to come back as servants or slaves. We can come back to a place of honor as priest in a kingdom of priest. That's good stuff. Folks, um, be sure and subscribe to Christianity Now. Uh, we've, we've, we've got 137 subscribers now. That's amazing to me. Thank you so much. Uh, share the content on your Facebook page. If you want to support us, a $5 a month subscription on Substack is a way to do it, or you can do a dollar a month on Patreon. Follow us on X, also known or formerly known as Twitter. And then you've got Rumble, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Understanding the Time. And uh, yeah, if you want to support us as far as just send a one-time monetary donation, we do have a tip jar. Uh, go to or, or send your monetary donation. If you're not going to be Substack, you're not going to do Patreon. You don't want to do those. Uh, near churches at gmail.com. And again, you have, and I'm grateful for that. So I don't mention, I don't mention the people that donate on the live stream because I I don't feel like people would want to do it. Um, Rusty Kirby, thank you very much. I'm. I hope that that came across. I hope it was received in the way it was intended to be received in the way it was given. I wasn't trying to be dogmatic. I was trying to be respectful. Really. I say that. And I think I use the term hyper stupid. Maybe I need to do better, but I want to be respectful to both sides. I mean, look, if you've got a scruple against celebration of Christmas, man, just, or well, not, not you, but if someone has a scruple who is listening against the celebration of Christmas, or about the celebration of Christmas, please don't violate your conscience. Just don't celebrate Christmas. But please allow other people to enjoy the freedom in Christ for which he died. So that's that's all I've got. God bless every one of you. Thank you so much. You know what to do. Like, subscribe, and share. Podbean, Apple Podcast, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. God bless you, and we'll catch you on the flip side.